my name is Eric, and I welcome you to our Black Gay Diaspora podcast, where we, as LGBTQ plus citizens, come together to inspire and educate each other on who we are and our respective countries and professions. Through topics and guest interviews, our Black Gay Diaspora podcast celebrates individuals making a difference. Loving who we love is not a choice. Being who we're meant to be can be. We are here. You are welcome. We are community. I'm going to read my script for this because there's so much good nuggets of stuff in here that I don't want to miss out on. But I will start off with saying that I have been a longtime vegan, but I never thought to reach out and interview other vegans. I recently read an article on livekindly.com titled 11 Vegan LGBTQIA plus activists you need to know about. And one individual that stood out to me is Pax Ahimsa Gethin, a queer, black, trans, vegan activist, blogger, photographer, and volunteer editor for Wikipedia. Writing about gender, veganism, and other social issues, Pax's articles can be found on funcrunch.org and funcrunch.medium.com. Pax is the former manager of communications and operations for the city of San Francisco's Office of Transgender Initiatives. And I look forward to finding out more about their journey as a Black trans man, atheist, and pacifist. Hey, Pax, and welcome. How are you? Hi, thanks. I'm doing pretty well today. How are you? I am doing very well. I am currently back in the UK, been back here for a few weeks and still getting used to it being a little bit chillier here. Mm. Yeah, it's a little chilly here today, well, by San Francisco standards, which is around 50 degrees Fahrenheit, so not so chilly for winter elsewhere, I suppose. Well, for L.A., where I lived at for a long time, that's actually pretty chilly. Yeah, that would be for L.A. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I actually love San Francisco. I haven't been in a few years, but it's in my top five of favorite cities. It is a great place to live. Yeah, yeah. Are you a native of San Francisco? No, I was born in Pittsburgh, but I've been out here for, well, I've been in the San Francisco Bay Area for over 30 years now and in San Francisco for over 20. So I'm definitely a local, though not a native. But it's safe to say it's home. It is definitely my home now, yes. We are recording at the very end of the work week. How's your week been so far? Uh, pretty uneventful. Well, one unusual thing for me is I actually went out to see a movie in a movie theater, which I rarely do anymore, <laughs> even before COVID, because I'm married to an audio engineer, so I can have a very excellent movie experience here in my home. But it was a one-day-only showing of The Abyss Special Edition. Have you seen that film? James Cameron's The Abyss. It's an amazing film. It's from 1989. Highly recommend it. So it was a 4D restoration. So worth going to see in a theater. Yeah, great director and a vegan. I always joke that I've yet to convert anyone. (laughs) Especially when in the beginning, when I became vegan 23 years ago. And I still kind of have fun with it with my family because I I could see that they still don't really understand it, even though we have Google. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But um, around the holidays, there's a part of me that still enjoys watching in my peripheral when they look at me when I'm eating like, so how is he going to do this? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, holidays are a tough time for vegans, for sure. Um, I mean, my spouse and I have always had a vegan Thanksgiving feast together ever since we met, even before we were living together. So that's a 20-year tradition, 21 now, I guess, year tradition for us. So 
Like I always make the pumpkin pie. It's the first thing I do in the morning. I have a really great vegan pumpkin pie recipe. It's so easy. Just throw everything in the blender and then throw it in the oven. So easy. And uh, I always insist on getting the cranberry sauce. It's like the jellied kind that comes out of the can, like (laughs) (laughs) like in the shape of the can. I mean, it's totally not healthy, but I feel like Thanksgiving is not a day to be healthy. You know, it's a day to feast. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. You just brought back memories of childhood. (laughs) Yeah. Though, Though I should emphasize, though, on a more serious side, that there is a serious negative association with Thanksgiving. There's a really brutal history that has been literally whitewashed in the U.S. about the true origins of Thanksgiving. So I've rebranded it basically to a harvest feast. That's how I deal with that association. <laughs> you know, I discovered this past August that you won Wikimedia's Media Contributor of the Year Award. For those who may not know, the Wikimedia Foundation is the organization that owns wikipedia.org. How was it winning the award? It was a big surprise even to be nominated for it. I was not expecting it when I was told that I was a nominee because I feel like my major contributions for the media of Wikimedia, which goes on a site called Wikimedia Commons, which is for images and photos, the most contributions I made to that was several years ago. I was taking a lot of photos of rallies and protests in the years 2016 and 2017 after a certain presidential election that we all remember, unfortunately. <laughs> and not, not just for that reason, but all kinds of uh, social issues. So I would take the photos and I would put them on Wikimedia Commons and I would illustrate articles on Wikipedia because I'm primarily an editor and writer on the English Wikipedia. So if I saw an article that needed a photo and I had a photo, I would add it to it. So that's what I was recognized for. And by the time I got this recognition this year, I was contributing a lot less, but I've still been editing a lot. So I guess that's how I ended up being nominated for the awards. But I was able to accept my award from Jimmy Wales, the co-founder of Wikipedia online. You know, I saw my face broadcast on the big screen later. So that, that, was, that was quite an experience. Yeah, I haven't done anything like that for sure. So with you submitting photos, is that also on a volunteer basis? Oh, yeah. Everything's volunteer. All of the content on Wikipedia and Wikimedia Commons is contributed strictly by volunteers. I am not paid a cent for this. How long have you been editing for Wikipedia? Well, I made my first edit in 2008, but I didn't really start editing actively on a regular basis till probably around 2014. Okay, okay. And what sparked your interest in starting to edit for Wikipedia? When I started, it was just that I had been using the site as a reference, you know, for so long, and I knew that one could contribute to it. I didn't have any particular reason to, and I just randomly made an edit one day to add a Led Zeppelin song to a list of songs with unusual time signatures, because I like songs that aren't just in the standard, like, 4-4 time. It was totally random. But then after my gender transition in the year 2013, that's when I started wanting to contribute more actively to articles about uh, transgender folks like myself, because I wanted to make sure that our story was not just being told by cisgender people. So that was my motivation. Yeah, transgender folks, black folks, marginalized folks in general, I just felt like we need more of our voices on the encyclopedia. Now, are you the only one who is 
ensuring that we're getting factual information uh, in connection to transgender and also black citizens? I hope I'm not the only one. I mean, there's (laughs) something like 10,000 active, active editors. I mean, there's many more thousands of people editing than that. But as far as like really active, like on a regular basis active, there are uh, wiki projects devoted to these subjects, basically where editors can collaborate online. Um, So there's the main wiki project that I'm active in is called LGBT Studies. There's also a wiki project, African Diaspora. There's a wiki project, Black Lives Matter. And then there are other user groups. There's a a Wikipedia LGBT user group, and we have monthly meetups over Zoom and uh, meetups in person at the uh, annual Wikimania conference and various initiatives to get more Black folks involved in the encyclopedia, like the Black Lunch Table is one meetup that gets black folks to edit articles. So there's definitely initiatives going on. I'm not the only one. So for anyone who wants to contribute, how does one get involved? Well, I recommend that if you want to edit on the Wikipedia, regardless of your race, gender identity, etc., you should start out just simple by making like corrections to typos, correcting uh, obvious grammatical errors, broken links, Uh, reverting obvious vandalism. Don't just jump in there and start out writing like a biography or editing on something controversial right away. I always recommend that people just start slow to get a feel for the project and the way things work because there's a lot of misunderstandings and misconceptions. And if you just jump in on a controversial topic right away or start trying to write an article from scratch right away, you're very likely to get your contributions reverted, and that can be very disappointing. Sounds like it's great, um, not practice, but experience for somebody who's starting out as an editor or a writer. Yeah, I mean, it's available for everyone. I mean, it's not literally the encyclopedia that anyone can edit anymore because some articles have various levels of protection because they attract so much vandalism, particularly articles about trans folks and articles about controversial subjects like Black Lives Matter. So there are various levels of protection that can be added to an article so that anonymous editors or editors who are brand new to the site can't edit them. But that's just more incentive, I think, for you to register an account instead of um, being an anonymous editor. With you winning the award, what can this mean with you working with Wikipedia or with other publications? Being a Black trans person that can raise the profile you know, for other people like me who might not be willing or be skeptical about the encyclopedia based on, you know, its coverage of people like me. It happens that the Wikimedia Foundation is located in San Francisco, where I live. So even though the staff is remote, that is where the international Wikimedia headquarters are. So I went there a few weeks after winning the award because the new CEO, Mariana uh, Iskander, I believe that's her name. I'll look it up later to make sure. And I got to meet her and I knew the previous CEO as well. So we got to talk in person and I talked with the communications director and some other folks about my concerns as a black trans person and how we were represented on the encyclopedia. I mean, I might have had that opportunity even if I hadn't won the award, but that just kind of gave an excuse because I went there to pick up my swag bag that I didn't get from Wikimania since I wasn't there in person. And the person giving it to me said, oh, by the way, the CEO is going to be in town if you want to chat with her. Well, it's good to hear that there's a voice that can 
talk to someone in a professional capacity about the importance of having individuals like you who stress the importance of being on staff? Fortunately, I have found that the Wikimedia Foundation has been very supportive and uh, willing to amplify marginalized voices. I should emphasize the Wikimedia Foundation does not control the content of the encyclopedia. They hire staff members that do things like maintain the servers for encyclopedia, do outreach, that sort of thing. But the content of the encyclopedia is entirely volunteer-contributed. If someone is paid for editing an article on Wikipedia, which is highly discouraged, it's required that they disclose that information. You know, it's one of the main resources I go on when I want to look up information. It seems like it has replaced those brown encyclopedias that I remember as a kid. (laughs) I grew up with a world book encyclopedia. I think it was the 1977 edition. Although, I mean, there is a romantic quality to having a physical hardback book. I can understand that. But for something like an encyclopedia, it's already outdated the moment it's printed. Yeah, which is something I hadn't thought about when you mentioned just saying the date 1977, like say the family could get a brand new set of encyclopedias, but that information is constantly changing. Once a year is just too late for today's news. Reminder to me that I never think about the actual work that's going into a site like Wikipedia, but you know, I think of a celebrity when they pass, and when as soon as you these days you go on to Wikipedia, that information is usually updated quickly. You know. Yeah, and part of what I do when a uh, a black celebrity uh, has passed or a trans celebrity, I try to make sure that they get on the front page in the recent deaths area because. Not everybody who dies gets in that section because the criteria, which I think people don't understand from outside the project, is not whether or not the person is important. Anyone who is deemed important enough to have an article at all is eligible to be in that recent death section. The criteria is, is the article in good shape? The article has to be written well. It has to have citations. That's the most important thing. So if you go to the article and there's a lot of facts, there's a lot of claims made about the person, but there's no citations to back that up, then it will not be eligible to put there. So when I see that there's a celebrity that I think should be in that section, that the article isn't in good shape, I will try to work to get it up to speed. And I'll post in like Wiki Project African Diaspora to say, hey, can we you help out with this article to make sure that they get recognized? So do you edit or write for other publications? Uh, No, just my own blog on Medium. I have not been uh, writing uh, for any other publications, not as a paid writer anyway. Well, speaking of your blog site, funcrunch.org, I like that name. Thank you. (laughs) What is the origin of the name? So Fun Crunch is a play on Fenchurch, which is a character from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams, one of my favorite books, very humorous science fiction series. My ex kind of gave me that name, and I used it as a handle on my early online adventures like BBS. I was Fenchurch, and then he came up with Fun Crunch, and I decided to use that going forward. So that's my handle almost everywhere online now. And how long has Fun Crunch been active? Funcrunch.org. Oh, God, like 15, 20 years now, I think over probably over 20 years now. 
So you've seen the evolution over the years in real time of how this medium that we use, how how important it is. I was born in 1970, so I've seen the entire evolution of the Internet. You know, I mean, there's some sites that I try not to be involved with because I just don't like them, like TikTok. I know everybody's on TikTok now. I'm like, uh, I'll pass. But, you know, I've tried to keep up with these things. So it's been really interesting to see, to progress from when I was a kid and had to look at my, you know, world book encyclopedia hardback books to do my homework to now where I just get on Wikipedia to look up anything I want. And now that I can have a, a full-fledged computer in my pocket. I mentioned in your bio that you're a pacifist. And can you share with us what that means for you? What it means for me is I am against killing anyone for any reason. That might sound simple, but when you really take that seriously, that completely eliminates large parts of society like the police and military. I am completely against killing, period. That's what I mean by being a pacifist. Now, not everyone agrees with that definition of pacifism, and there are various gradations to which people are willing to make exceptions, such as for self-defense. But for me, I am completely against killing. I just don't feel that there is a good excuse for killing another human being for anyone with the possible exception of self-defense. But for me, I wouldn't even do it for that reason. And how long have you been a pacifist? I guess as long as I've been vegan, I've just come to realize it more lately, and especially with regards to things like the police and military, because when I really thought about it, I thought, you know, if I'm to be consistent with my values, I cannot support these institutions. That is really frightening to people, especially here in the United States, where we're, you know, a superpower based on our military might. We have something like 40% of our black male population imprisoned and the police are basically modern day slave catchers. It would require a complete revolution of society to have the kind of peaceful existence that I imagine. Complete revolution. For every mass shooting, there's even more deaths going on by firearm and by other means that we don't read about just every day. That's why I named myself Pax Ahimsa. It literally translates to peace and nonviolence. I decided when I changed my name, when I transitioned gender in 2013, I didn't want to just be like John or Mike or whatever. I wanted to have a name that was personally meaningful to me. So Pax is the translation for peace in Latin, and Ahimsa means literally do no harm from Sanskrit. Gethin uh, is from a book called The Left Hand of Darkness by Ursula Le Guin, my favorite author, and it's the name of a planet of androgynes, so everybody is sexless, or rather, they have both sexes, both pairs of, both sets of genitalia, basically, they can, they can basically reproduce from whether they're male or female. It's hard to describe, but basically, since I'm a non-binary person, that appealed to me. <laughs> What prompted your decision to be public about, about this part of your journey? You know, with the internet, I saw that it was easier, you know, to spread the message, you know, of veganism than ever before. I wanted to show that veganism wasn't just for white folks because it's often seen as just something, not just for white folks, but privileged folks in general, which I don't get. 
it's not more expensive to be vegan. You know, it's not more difficult to be vegan necessarily. I even wrote a blog entry about it uh, where I talked about, hey, if you're making one of these excuses for not being vegan, let me ask you, you know, does this apply to you personally or are you virtue signaling? You know, I mean, if someone genuinely cannot access enough plant-based food to have a healthy diet, for whatever reason, I'm not going to tell them, you know, that they are a bad person or whatever. I mean, I'm not going to say that my pacifism extends so far that I feel there is never an excuse to kill an animal, especially when it comes to um, animals like insects that can, you know, cause infestations and do us harm. But for me, it does extend to animals. So, yeah. And when you mentioned cultural or ethnic or race, you know, I know when I became vegan, especially with black friends, and they would say, oh, I thought that was for white women. And it's like, where'd you hear that? <laughs> Doesn't even make you know? sense, does it? You know? Yeah. I think it's just because so many prominent vegan activists and gurus are white folks. But I think that just lends more of the idea that it's for, you know, privileged folks as opposed to everyday folks who just want to eat like a baked potato. People act like vegan food is like a special kind of food. I'm like, have you ever eaten a banana? Congratulations, you've had a vegan food. A banana is vegan. You know, it's as simple as that. Eat the banana, you know. And I like your point, too, that, again, for me, not so much when it feels antagonistic, but when someone says, oh, well, how do you do this? It's like, well, you're eating vegan every day. It's just you inc- you add other things to it. Now, with you being in San Francisco, the San Francisco area, which is known to be in some ways more progressive than other parts of the country, are there organizations there, vegan organizations that you're involved with? Not currently, but yeah, this is one of the best places in the United States to be vegan, that's for sure. Non-vegan restaurants have plenty of vegan options. I have been involved in vegan and vegetarian meetups in the past. I'm just not into it right now. But yeah, this is a very vegan-friendly city. The joy when I would go to San Francisco, just the, I think this is my opinion, the restaurants, the, the culture around food is just so much more rich in San Francisco. So I do miss that. I haven't visited in a while. San Francisco is the city that I dreamed of. It's like a New York. It's it's more compact. It's easier to move around. It feels in oh, yeah. some ways more cultured because it's easier to move around, it seems like. It's definitely more compact than L.A., that's for sure. I mean, San Francisco proper, you know, is only 49 square miles. As I mentioned, I was born in Pittsburgh, so I, I grew up there and I went to college in uh, at Northwestern, which is a Evanston suburb of Chicago, a lot of the folks have, that, you know, made San Francisco what it is have moved because it's so expensive to live here, among other reasons. Black folks in particular used to be thriving districts of black folks, you know, the Fillmore, the jazz, jazz district and stuff. There's like less than, fewer than 5% of the city is black now. Very sad. We have a black mayor, but she uh, is very friendly to corporate interests and police, so... What was life like growing up in Pittsburgh? Well, actually, I grew up not just in Pittsburgh and in West Virginia. It's a little complicated. I was born in Pittsburgh, but when I was only five, we moved to West Virginia, So, and I spent the next eight years there. The only black kid in my elementary school, 
it could have been worse. I mean, 1970s West Virginia wasp town, you know, I wasn't out as gay or queer and certainly not trans yet. Um, so I didn't have that to worry about, but there was some racist bullying and my mother experienced some as well. My dad's white, I should mention. So white Jewish father, black mother. I mean, I was pretty happy at growing up as an only child. And so when we moved to Pittsburgh, it was kind of a culture shock because I went from this like small town elementary school where I was the only black kid to this huge urban middle school with like 1,700 kids that was like more than 50% black. And I was, you know, considered an outcast. Basically, I didn't talk right. I talked too white. I didn't listen to the right radio stations. I didn't have my hair the right way. I was, everything was wrong. I wasn't black enough. So that was actually very painful. It was a very painful transition. This is part of why I write, you know, blog entries, because I have a lot of stories to tell, I feel like, that are unique. Being from Phoenix, being from Arizona, which is not known for having a, a large Black community. There are s small ones there, but partly, too, growing up somewhat sheltered. But it wasn't until I moved to L.A. that I've really hit me like, oh, this is why I've had people say certain things to me. And then the ways that I, I retreated and went further in and then still the process in some ways of saying that this is just what you're going to get and I'm okay with it and I'm, I need to be okay with if you're not okay with it. Yeah. I went to um, a conference earlier this year. It was like a, a queer conference where there was a session specifically for mixed race folks and we all went around the room and told our stories. It was so emotional hearing everybody's emotional baggage from growing up with these different expectations on both sides. So I think it's important that folks share that. We can't be what we don't see. And, and part of that is, is when you, you as a writer share your experiences and someone, wherever they are, can say, oh, okay, I'm not the only one. Yeah. And when we were young, we didn't have that option, you know, to share that online. I mean, we only could read books and books were only published. Um, you can self-publish easily like you can now. At the same time, part of the pain point for me is the stories that I feel like have gotten the most readership have been where I've been the most emotional. And that's kind of hard for me because I feel like I don't want to have to literally sell my soul. You see what I'm saying? bear the most intimate parts of me in order to get some money. So that that's, that's tricky. Well, as a writer, as a creator, how do you consciously or unconsciously strike the balance of what to share from your own life? I used to share quite a bit about being trans and my journey of being a trans person, but now I'm kind of shifting away from that and talking more about pacifism because I feel like that affects everybody, not just me. I mean, it's not just about identity politics. I hate that term. I mean, I feel like I, I refer not so much to my identity as my frame of reference, because I feel like it's important to know that I'm Black, that I'm queer, that I'm trans. I have that frame of reference. That doesn't mean that all Black or queer or trans people are going to think the same way, but that means that you should know these things about me, if only so that you don't later accuse me of, oh, well, you're obviously saying that because you're X, Y, or Z. Because folks often don't even know that I'm black. I've gotten all kinds of wrong guesses about my ethnicity, which is kind of funny, you know. So that's part of the other reason why I feel like I need to say that. 
but yeah, going back to the shift, I feel like I don't want to just talk about being trans. That's not the only thing that I am. I feel like being trans is, is just an innate part of me. It's not something that I chose. I don't think anybody would necessarily choose to be trans as in like choose to live in a body that might not be aligned with our genders. I mean, that's a tough situation to be in. But I did choose to be a pacifist. That is important. That's what I want to talk about now. I did read some of your articles that you've published. And, you know, one of them, thoughts on the death of Kissinger, where you, you know, you mentioned his passing and then kind of incorporate your your pacifist views. But even in reading that, I, I felt like there was a balance there in what you were writing about. Yeah, I felt like I wanted to write that because I saw a lot of people on the, the one social network that I'm most active on right now is Mastodon. And I saw a lot of people openly celebrating his death. And I totally understood why they were because he was responsible for a lot of deaths and, and pain and horrible things. But I said that I personally do not celebrate anyone's death. I didn't mourn him either. I'm not, you know, excusing anything that this man did, but I just personally will not celebrate anyone's death unless they wanted to die because of terminal illness and horrible pain. That would be an exception because I see a value in everyone's life. I really value everyone's life. As an atheist, I don't believe in an afterlife. I believe this is one life. This is all we get. You know, I cannot condone killing anyone or even wishing for anyone's death or making death threats against them. Kissinger is not someone that I respect whatsoever. That's not the point. It's just that I would not celebrate anyone's demise. I mean, my grandmother on my mom's side lived to be 95, so I might have it in my genes to live that long too. And I thought, what will be my legacy? I mean, I am child-free by choice, so I'm not going to have any physical errors. I'm not planning to adopt either. So it will just be, you know, my writing, my interviews like this, if they exist in the future for people to listen to, that will be my legacy. And how do I want to be remembered? That's one of the things I did like in the piece is you, you touched on as we age and which I think is definitely important to talk about because we talk about internalized homophobia, um, racism, these other ones. But for myself, as I'm getting older, my own internalized ageism and how I sit within myself and say, okay, this is a gift of living. So let me dismantle to the best of my ability some of that thing. Not to blame, but some cause and effect when how media influences us to diminish ourselves as we age. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've been thinking, you know, part of why I'm not gainfully employed right now is, you know, I see job openings and they're clearly geared toward younger people. I mean, I was lucky to get the job with the city that I did as an intern because interns are clearly more geared toward like people just coming out of college or maybe still in college. And, you know, I was 49 years old when I got that job. And luckily, I was able to stay beyond the original internship duration and transfer it into a regular job. But I left because they wanted me to work full time. And I wasn't willing to do that. I feel like, you know, I'm 53 years old now. I mean, at the time I left, I was a little younger. And I just, I had only agreed to work part time. And I still will not take a job where I have to work more than 30 or 32 hours a week. 
And I feel like that's ageist in a way because I don't feel like at this point in my life, I want to work the 40 hour week. And I am privileged to be supported by my spouse who does work full time and has the energy to, despite being only a couple of years younger than me, but he's just in really good shape. <laughs> so, you know, if I were alone, I wouldn't have the choice but to work 40 hours or even more a week. You know, when I first got involved in web development, when the World Wide Web first launched, I put up my first website in 94, it was considered that, you know, you would have to work more than 40 hours a week to be a computer, doing anything with computers. You know, I talked to a friend about getting into programming and I said I didn't want to work more than that. And he said, well, who's going to hire you? <laughs> it's just that attitude. And yeah, maybe if you're 20 years old, 25, 30 you're willing to work 60 hours a week, 80 hours a week, sleep overnight at the office. But, you know, for us in our 50s, it's like, come on, let's have a life. So I feel like that is one factor of ageism. Another article that I read where you incorporated, which for me as a writer, I like this one because you, you were candid about, it's called Children in War Crimes. Mm. You were candid about your pacifism, but also about your Jewish ancestry, connecting it to what's going on right now with the Israel-Hamas war. It's just, I thought it was very courageous in, in how you wrote that piece. Thank you. Yeah, it bothers me when anyone who criticizes Israel or criticizes Zionism is labeled as anti-Semitic. I mean, even though I have never been a practicing Jew, you know, my father's side of the family is Jewish, so that is part of my heritage. And I know there are a lot of other folks who are even actively practicing Jewish who are against Zionism or criticize Israel, which isn't to say that I'm on the side of Hamas. I'm not on anyone's side. I'm on the side of peace. I am against this war. I want a ceasefire. I want no violence. And I know that's, you know, considered like a fantasy, but that's how I feel. Yeah. And even you saying that, people say, well, that that's not possible. But there's a part of me that says, well, why isn't it? <laughs> and then I think of that honest discussion, uh, humans in general, to talk about just how much of it is, is ego. Ego, yeah. We need dreamers. We need people to push for this. I mean, there's unlimited money in the U.S. for war. Why don't we have unlimited money for peace? Costa Rica got rid of their army and funneled all the money toward education and social services. Why can't we do it? I mean, I know the answer to why we can't do it because it's not in the DNA of this country, basically. Like I said, it would take a revolution. But the point is, it's possible. I hate when people say, oh, well, that's impossible. It's like, no, it is possible for us to be peaceful. It is possible for us to have free food, clothing, shelter, health care for everyone. These are decisions we can make. We have the technology. We have the intelligence. We just have to commit to it. You've touched on, you know, some of your experiences as a Black, queer, trans individual. As far as the process of acceptance, how was that for you? I feel like being here in the Bay Area during my gender transition helped immensely. Because when I see what trans folks are going through in other parts of the country, like Florida, Texas, you know, where they're trying to make us illegal. 
but this is probably one of the most queer friendly cities in the country. I mean, it is totally, totally normal to be queer here. Now, it's definitely easier to be a white gay man in San Francisco to be a black trans person, for sure. But that, that's probably the case anywhere, but here as well. My point is that my gender transition was very smooth because of living in an area where that was affirmed. Now, as far as uh, realizing that I wasn't straight, that was much longer ago. That was back in um, my senior year of college, I think 1991. That was shortly after National Coming Out Day launched, and I saw people um, advertising for National Coming Out Day, and that's when I came out initially as bisexual. And that I got a bit more pushback from because that was a more conservative space at the time. But the very following year, I moved out here where it was not an issue. So I should add, you know, just kind of like my caveat with Thanksgiving that, you know, just because I celebrate it doesn't mean that it's easy for everyone. I mean, again, for uh, black folks in particular, it's hard to be in San Francisco. And a lot of, you know, our homeless folks are uh, black folks and a lot of them are queer or trans so that is something to be aware of. Our mayor has been fairly supportive of the trans community and actually came up with an initiative to um, give a basic uh, income allotment to uh, trans folks. It was just like $1,000 a month. I say like just, but that's like nothing here. I mean, the average rent here for like a studio apartment is like over 2,000 a month. But anyway, there's been a lawsuit filed against this saying that it's discriminatory to a lot because it targets uh, black trans folks specifically and it says it's discriminating against white people so giving the money is discriminating against white people yeah because this is an oh. initiative for black trans folks specifically I see. and okay. they're saying it's discriminating against white people I, I forget what the term for it is but there are multiple you know levels of marginalization and the more of them that you have the harder it is i feel like that if we're gonna bring up reverse discrimination, you, you'd still have to put on the table what you just shared, that you have to acknowledge your realities that if I'm Black, if I'm trans, if I'm queer, if all of those are part of my identity, the challenge is not within myself, but just how systemically it is, it's going to be more of a challenge. Yeah. So if you're going to bring that to the table, you got to bring it all to the table. Yeah, the whole idea of reverse racism, I mean, that's something I bought into back when I was young and ignorant, you know, I'm like, oh, it's just straight up racism. If you privilege, like, if you give something to black folks, you have to give something to white folks. I grew up and I realized that's not how it works. We are uh, at the end of this conversation. I wish it could go on a lot longer, but thank you so much for coming on to this platform. And yeah, I initially started with me looking for Black queer vegans, other Black queer vegans, but it's 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 a lot more. So I thank you for coming on and sharing your your journey. Thank you. I really appreciate the invitation. Great talking with you. I always ask if you have any final thoughts or insights. Just that I feel like we need to evolve into a more peaceful species, and this is going to take a moral revolution. By morality, I don't mean any specific religion. Again, I'm an atheist, although I've spent time with Quakers, so I um, appreciate that worldview of uh, having a very peaceful relationship with others. And I've spent time as a Buddhist, so I have that kind of mindset. But it's not a religious thing, it's a moral thing. We just need to respect each other's humanity. And if you really respect and see another human being, how can you kill them? 
how can you take away their life? Thank you. As far as um, connecting with you, is it okay to do that through fundcrunch.org? That's the best place. I've got my email. I've got links to my social media and my blog. It's one-stop shopping. (laughs) It's been my domain for a long time. Thank you for spending time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, comment, and subscribe. Share with your friends, too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Our Black Gay Diaspora and on Twitter at BLK Gay Diaspora. Until next time.